It's time for another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. You're listening to Give Me the Fear, the Britflix podcast, Frightfest 2023 preview series. My name is Stuart Wright, and usually I host this show. But for this genre talent filled build up to the Woodstock of Gore, I'm keeping stump. When this intro is done, this is the last you're going to hear from me until I ask you to tell your friends all about it. The spoiler-free interviews are brief, and across the entire series, you will discover the kind of knowledge and experience about how to make horror films that they just don't teach you at film school. Are you ready for that? After looking back at the blood, sweat and tears that went into their creative successes, I asked them one last question. If you could handpick one person to be in the audience, alive or dead, famous or personal to you, for your fright first screening, who would it be and why? I think you're going to love the answers this question elicits. I certainly do. That's my introduction over with. Let's hear from the talent. I'm Graham Hughes, and I'm the writer and director, as well as a bunch of other roles that uh, we needed filled and <laughs> I couldn't afford to fill with anyone else. My new film is called Hostile Dimensions. So Hostile Dimensions is a sci-fi horror found footage film about two documentary filmmakers who are trying to track down this missing graffiti artist who seems to have disappeared through this uh, mysterious freestanding door. And uh, the truth is more terrifying than they could have imagined. One fond memory I have of the making of the film, um, when I was writing it, uh, the Backrooms short had just sort of blown up online uh, by Kane Pixels. Um, and it got me really interested in like liminal horror and particularly the idea of the Backrooms and how it's like a shared sort of creepypasta lore. And I wanted to do something like that with one of the alternate universes in, in Hostile Dimensions. And um, I was looking through uh, various sort of... Um, location libraries uh, for Scotland because we couldn't travel much further out from Glasgow. So I was just looking to find like the right sort of place. Just needed this kind of like boxy white room that gave that sort of backrooms aesthetic or like a series of them. So we found this like ideal one in Glasgow, um, but their roof was getting fixed so they couldn't fit us in for the shoot dates. And um, I'd exhausted every other op- like um, option. So it was that whole kind of... Uh, creativity from restrictions sort of idea so it got me thinking right right, we can't get this like backrooms aesthetic um, but we can still do something that's like liminal horror and uh, I I follow a bunch of like liminal horror um, Instagram accounts and are always posting pictures of like empty swimming pools and things like that and there was one of a a kid's soft play and I was like oh that that could that could really work and there's like loads of kids soft plays uh, in and around Glasgow so um, 
in the original script when it was the backrooms there was still this like big giant teddy bear character um so <laughs> something that's featured in the in the trailer and i think a lot of people have like really enjoyed about the film is this uh this panda <laughs> this monstrous panda that is in the film and that came purely from not being able to find uh, a good backrooms location and then switching like track to um soft play and we found this one pandemonium <laughs> which is panda themed um and even up to that point i was like oh this is like so creepy this is so perfect let's get there and next on my list is all right we've got that we need to get the the bear costume because i still wanted this bear and it was just pure coincidence that um i was going through pandemonium's uh like instagram account and i saw that they have this giant pa panda costume as well so like had my producer hat on and i was like so we've already like rented the place like do you mind if we put one of our actors in your panda costume and they're like no no fine i'm like oh great we've saved like 200 pounds on like a really good panda costume for that day and <laughs> so like from going from like having like a brown giant brown teddy bear in like a boxy white backroom space went to having uh, a monstrous panda in a kid's soft play um, purely just through like pragmatic um, producing decisions. But ultimately, I think it's much what we ended up with is much better than what was on the, the page. So, uh, yeah, the, the limitations really helped us make something a lot better there. So if I could have just one person uh, attend <laughs> the Fright Fest screening and see the film, um, my first instinct was my granddad. Because he was the one that got me into cinema in the first place. Um, he would like tape everything off the TV and um, just introduce me to films and that. But I honestly think that he would uh, not understand the film at all and he would probably hate it. So like in spirit, yes. But I think more a, a better person to have in the audience would be um, Matt Johnson, the director of the 30s. Um, it was him through through the dirties that like opened my eyes to the potential of found footage filmmaking and um i sort of got into it at that time when um it felt a bit burned out and cheap and like had a it was a really dirty word within the horror community and i saw the dirties um and it just opened my eyes to the possibilities of what what the medium still has um so yeah i'd want matt johnson to be there so i can just sort of thank him for um saving me out of i was ready to give up filmmaking and uh just not being able to get anything off the ground and seeing the potential of found footage and how you can do things with a lot lower budget um and and really leverage the again the the limitations into something really creative i'm ashley saban i'm david redmond and we're co-directors of kim's video so Kim's video is a crazy story about a video collection, um, both VHS and DVD, that was in New York City. And it closed in 2009 with the onset of, uh, you know, everything going digital. And it got offered up for a donation by the owner, young man Kim, a South uh, Korean American immigrant. And it went to Sicily. And sort of, I'll leave it at that. Kind of got swallowed alive, and we had to go find it. We were members of this particular video store for several years. I, I can't recall how many years—about ten years. So that was our—that's that, that, our pre-production experience. 
that led to the making of this movie. You know, when the video store left, I in particular became quite uh, depressed about it leaving because it had about 55,000 movies. And a lot of a lot of which you couldn't find online anywhere. They were bootleg movies. They were donated movies. They were student movies. Uh, you know, Spike Jones made movies. Uh, Martin Scorsese had movies in there that were never released. And um, that, that's that's my one pre-production story. And I'd say that's what led to the making of the movie, from my perspective. We've always, we've, we've always sort of had this, <clears throat> this motto that most people don't like, and it's called shoot first and ask questions later. You, you, in, in this sense, you know, there's this particular cultural zeitgeist happening right now <clears throat> called ethics of care. <clears throat> and it's supposed to take into consideration how to uh, care for the characters in a, in a, in a movie. And one thing we've always been interested in is the, the tension and the relationship between the characters in a movie and the, the people doing the filmmaking. And oftentimes there, there's just not time to, uh, you know, implement a, you know, a, a mode of care. It's, it's, it, what's interesting about this movie is that you feel the tension, you see the tension, you get an understanding of the embattled relationship between the filmmakers and the characters in the movie. And by the end of the movie, <clears throat> you see this relationship come together and it provides a resolution. And that's what makes it so interesting. Um, well, I think it's really, it's a, it's a film with one of the characters, which is David, um, because he's the one who goes to Sicily and you hear his voice throughout the film. And it, it's a question of never giving up. You know, he never takes no. He never takes the door closing. He never, you know, he never just walks away. Um, he really was obsessed to rent a movie and use his, you know, because the whole, once it went to Sicily, the whole terms that went with the collection was that you were allowed as a former member to rent, um, have free rentals from the collection. And so he said, I have a Kim's video membership card. He kept saying that I have a Kim's video membership card. And what the interesting thing with that is he wasn't disrespectful about it. He just wouldn't go away. And so people in this small town in Sicily, which is called Salemi, um, they, I don't think they knew what to do with him. You know, it was like this guy doesn't speak Italian, doesn't uh, have a translator. And that was mainly because we're DIY filmmakers and, you know, we don't have the budget for that. He just wouldn't leave. He was always showing up. So there's a great, um, there's a couple great moments with the police chief of just being like, you again, here you are. What are you doing here? Like, <laughs> sort of welcome back, but I'm not sure I want you back here, you know? So it really, um, I think it's David's tenacity that, um, because had I been there, you know, we have different st filmmaking styles and people's sty styles. Had I been there, I probably would have been like David Cool and, you know, probably 75% of the film wouldn't have been shot. So it was very good I wasn't there, actually, <laughs> because I'm more long game and he's short game. So no, no, I'm long game. You're long game and too? short game. <laughs> <laughs> You're just game. You're ready to go. <laughs> well, we're really bad at editing. Um, 
talking head interviews. Like really, that we struggled so so hard with that. So we actually got a finishing editor at the end. We were also really close to the story, um, too close to the story. So I would say that you know we 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 always edit throughout. Like as we're shooting, we're just editing. So we have this accumulation of scenes, but um, very quickly we towards the end we were like we need someone with a a really strong uh, vision for the film because we're a bit lost in this Alice in Wonderland um, uh, dark cave um, that you do sometimes when you're editing. So. Mark Becker came on and helped us out with it, but it just was, you know, it was, it really was a question of mixing so much different elements. We had the talking head interviews. We had the verite of David going there. We had, we pulled film movie clips, you know, um, and we got some movie clips in there, which are um, covered under fair dealing. Um, we pulled stuff from YouTube, um, but it was, it was a, it's like a, a funny scrapbook sort of collage of of time periods. I mean, some of it's four three, some of it's sixteen nine, um, and really trying to convey like what is Kim's video or what was Kim's video for people that never even rented there. So it's not just this like you know love story for us. It's it's a love story for everyone for something that you've lost. There's just so many exciting moments that came out of the. The edit, you know, once we sit down and begin to listen to the footage <clears throat> and assemble it, I think what's what's so interesting is that I'm not going to tell you what happens in the movie, but I eventually obviously do find the video collection. And when I do, there's an encounter between, you know, strange people, strangers who show up and uh, the guardian of the collection and the guardian of the collection, his name is Enrico. And Enrico and I became close uh, over the six years of making this movie. It turns out he's a musician. So here we have at the beginning of the movie, a confrontation between us. And by the end, he's doing the music. He's scoring the music for the, enti- for the entire movie. And, you know, we, we, we wove that music into the movie. And at the end, we, we demonstrate who, you know, who, who, made, the, who made the songs. I find that to be um, unusual, you know, for a collaboration between a a filmmaker and a a character. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Some of the revelations during the making of the movie. I mean, the whole film's like a revelation. It really is. It's like... I I don't think we ever thought we would find the collection, you know, when we went to Sicily. So the fact that um, we were able to locate it and then in the end, what we do with it, um, which has some sort of criminal acts. I think that's why it's appealing to a sort of horror film festival. There's some criminal things that go on that are more, you know, darker. Um, that and the mafia um, connection. But yeah, I don't think we ever thought we would, we would we would find the collection. So I think it was sort of just this like 
hope that we would, but if we didn't, it would be a very short film. You know, you go to Sicily, you can't find it. It's like, what do you do about that? So the fact that we were able to find it and then get our hands on it um, really changed the course of everything. The story continues and we're not filming anymore. I mean, as much as Ashley says, I have tenacity, you know, I only had tenacity because the collection, the movie collection spoke to me when I found it. And they asked me to go get help. They asked me to, uh, they, they said, you're here. You know, we've been waiting for you. And I promised the collection that I would help, you know, help them. And, you know, we did. We did everything we could to help the collection. But now the movie continues because Mr. Kim uh, continues to travel to Salimi for the last two years. And he's created two things. One, they've created a Kim's Video Museum and they've created a Kim's Video Film Festival. And Mr. Kim's trying to bring in tourism from Korea to help, you know, uh, give attention to this town. And to me, that's absolutely fascinating because there's so much tension in the movie between Salimi and Mr. Kim. And the fact that there's now resolution and even more happening, and he's continuously traveling there to help repopulate the town, to bring artists there, to bring filmmakers there. That speaks to his tenacity more so than than mine. Uh, I think there's a part two that can be made, and hopefully someone's doing that part two right now. I think it'd be nice to have the Coen brothers. They had a late fee, and there's a kind of a, a running joke in the film about, about that late fee. And so I'd be curious how they would respond to, to that joke. Hmm. I don't know about you. Well, I like Bong bon Joon-ho. But I also like Agnes Varda. So it's it's just hard to give one answer. But I think right now, you know, Agnes Varda is deceased. Uh, but I think I would love to see... I think she's seen the movie. Yeah. Her spirit, her ghost has seen the movie. She's been in the audience. But especially her, I think I, think I would like Agnes Varda to see the movie. Uh, my name is David Gregory. Uh, I am the co-owner of Severin Films, who is the producer of Enter the Clones of Bruce, and I also directed it. Uh, when Bruce Lee died in uh, 1973, right on the cusp of the release of Enter the Dragon, which would make him an international star, uh, all of a sudden there was this hole in this new market for Hong Kong action cinema or martial arts cinema. And so... Uh, a bunch of entrepreneurial producers decided they needed to fill this gap for the international market and make Bruce Lee movies that didn't actually feature Bruce Lee. So they uh, had to scour countries and gyms in various Asian countries to find people who not only looks a little bit like Bruce Lee, but could also perform martial arts and action on camera. And so this led to some three, four, five hundred films, depending on how you categorize Bruce Bloitation, uh, being released in the space of 10 years after the death of Bruce Lee. This documentary investigates that phenomenon, in particular talking to the four main clones of Bruce Lee. The journey for this documentary started when I was actually doing a uh, Blu-ray of trailers for Kung Fu movies called Kung Fu Trailers of Fury. And we'd uh, come across these 35 millimeter trailers at a cinema in Bristol called The Cube. 
And they came to us and said, can you do anything with these? And we decided to put together this compilation. And the extras, uh, I got Rick Myers and Frank Jeng, two uh, Asian action cinema experts, to do a commentary. They brought in a guy called Michael Worth whose very specific area of expertise was exploitation, And so when I interviewed Michael Worth about this, that really kind of opened my eyes to just how varied and wide this avenue was for 10 years and actually making these exploitation movies and getting them into cinemas. I mean, they didn't all star a Bruce Lee clone. Sometimes it was just a matter of the marketing that made it seem like a Bruce Lee uh, either a Bruce Lee biopic or a Bruce Lee sequel, or it had Bruce in it or in the tagline it had Bruce or it had Bruce's face on the poster. But the main thing was that there were uh, three or four guys who essentially played Bruce Lee in a ton of these movies. And that would be Bruce Lai, Bruce Lei, Dragon Lee, and to a lesser extent, Bruce Liang, aka Bruce Leung. And so I wanted to find out what these guys were doing what they felt about it uh being bruce lee clones and so frank jeng the aforementioned frank jeng i got him involved to actually do the coordinating and uh in hong kong and we went over there and just started shooting interviews my first bruce exploitation was called the bruce lee story on world of video 2000 and um, it was after I'd seen Enter the Dragon. After I'd seen Enter the Dragon, I'm like, oh, my God, I need to see all of these movies. It's amazing. Never seen anything like it. And I got the Bruce Lee story. And, uh, and yeah, that was when I was like, okay, they're not all of quite the same quality, are they? You know, <laughs> but still, it didn't stop me from getting a ton more. I mean, all of a sudden, I was, I was into, into kung fu movies for a while. Well, I think the most exciting was when we finally got Bruce Lay, the the, the most prolific of the of the Bruces, uh, because he actually was not a, a did not would not go on camera for the for, for several years. I mean, we started this film like seven years ago, and it always seemed incomplete because we couldn't get Bruce Lay, and we'd been in touch with him. He's still alive. He's still active. He's still even making films, uh, but he he did not want to talk about it. Uh, so when, when we actually did an edit of, of, of the doc, like a, uh, a pretty close to finished edit of the doc, and then we sent him the section, which was about him. And then he came back and said, okay, I'll be a part of it. We were like, this is the last chance to be a part of this. He said, okay. So we, next week we hopped on to a plane back to Hong Kong and, and shot the interview with him. But I would also say that getting the interview with Dragon Lee was, was pretty exciting too, because me and Michael Worth, just the two of us, flew to South Korea because we hadn't actually spoken to his office and neither had our co coordinator because our coordinator, coordinators speak Cantonese and Mandarin. They don't speak Korean. And so they went through somebody else who they didn't really know to get this in, set up this interview with Dragon Lee. And so when we got there, he it was like at the, um, the Korean equivalent of the Screen Actors Guild. He, he's pretty high up there. And... He was like, who are these people? What are you here for? <laughs> and, we're, and we're like, please don't turn us away. We've just come to South Korea to do this interview. And, you know, he's very skeptical at first. That's what we were setting up. He's all very serious, you know, on phone calls and stuff like that. But then when Michael Worth kind of busted out some of his rare memorabilia and he realized it was one of those situations where having sort of a fan along saying like, hey, sign my shit was, uh, was really worked in our favor because then he turned around and was like, oh, you're not here to just kind of either make fun of me or, or, or probe me for what, what I was doing back then, you know, when I was a young man. 
Um, not that he had anything to be ashamed of, but basically, you know, I don't know that any of these guys considered what they did uh, as important cinema, you know. And I think, you know, for what we do here at Severin, we, you know, we 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 like that kind of, you know, out there cinema, and and certainly so do thousands of fans around the world. So it just seemed like to us, it's like, no, 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 we're here to appreciate this this phenomenon. This is this is an, a wave unlike any other in the history of cinema, and we want to celebrate it. The things that I discovered when we were in 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 post production, I mean, of course, I I only got a general idea of what people were saying from Frank Jane from the interviews because they were speaking in Cantonese, Mandarin, uh, in some cases Japanese, Karatas, Japanese, and um, uh, South Korean, and there's also some German and French in there. So there's there's a lot of languages that that I don't speak fluently in there. So a lot of it actually was eye opening when I got the transcript, because I'd only got the general overview. But um, but I suppose the it's not exactly unexpected, but the idea that that most that the Bruce Lai and Dragon Lee were not particularly proud of having made uh, you know a career an early career out of being an imitator. You know, they wanted to kind of be their own person and they, they, it was sort of the producers that made them into that. Particularly Bruce Lai. I mean, Dragon Lee had his own personality. He was just called Dragon Lee and did moves with nunchucks and uh, and stuff that that were reminiscent of Bruce Lee. But Bruce Lai actually played Bruce Lee in several biopics and 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 played Bruce Lee's character or or the brother of his character in in various unofficial sequels, that kind of thing. And he was like, you know, such a huge admirer of Bruce Lee that he was. Uh, he was kind of torn about the fact that he was doing this. He was, he was like, I don't know that I should be exploiting the image of Bruce Lee. He wanted to convey the teachings of Bruce Lee. That was really what he was keen to do. But, you know, he was at the mercy of the filmmakers that he was working for, and, and that was that. I mean, he, he didn't think he'd made any good films, to be honest, and, and we corrected him on that. He had made many martial arts action movies he'd also made some duds but even those like bruce lee versus superman it's, it's like a ridiculous movie but it's incredibly fun to watch so you know that i i wouldn't dismiss that either you know um so but anyway he was uh, he was the one who would definitely had more of a conflicting uh outlook on 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 the whole phenomenon well i think the answer is pretty obvious on that because it would be interesting to see what Bruce Lee thought about this, this, this phenomenon that came out of him. Because somebody who was very proud and had quite a massive ego, you know, him, uh, his family, obviously, were, were, from what I understand, were not particularly happy about this whole phenomenon. I mean, they, they were completely confusing the, the audience worldwide about who Bruce Lee was, what he looked like, how many films he'd been in, and that kind of thing. But also kind of impinging on their opportunity to actually capitalize on the image and name of Bruce Lee. You know, they've subsequently, in more recent years, been able to trademark Bruce Lee, but not, but since that, but back then they couldn't do that. But I would like to see, A, what Bruce Lee <laughs> thought about it, because the one thing is, is that certainly all the actors wanted to pay tribute to Bruce Lee. They loved Bruce Lee. They were not here to basically, you know, uh, 
pick flesh off the corpse of Bruce Lee. You know, you could say that about some of the uh, some of the people who actually distributed the films and even some of the people who produced the films. But the actors themselves, they were dead serious about wanting to respect the legacy of Bruce Lee. And I hope that comes across in the movie. And if Bruce Lee was watching it, I hope he would see that. And second best to that would be, you know, somebody from Bruce Lee's family uh, seeing that that was indeed the case. Uh, I would also like Bruce Lai to see it because, you know, again, I think I think he has put himself down a bit on, uh, and he should see that, you know, what he did was actually quite an achievement. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with at least one friend. Put a link out on social media, rate and review it for your preferred podcast platform. Put an ad in Lou, Novel the Town Crier in the ear of the town gossip. You get the picture. It all helps bring new people into the Britflix podcast fold. Thank you. Another season of The Palmetto Porch, an original podcast from Discover South Carolina. I'm Devin Whitmire. Join me as I get to the heart of what makes South Carolina such a great place to visit by speaking to the locals who make it so special. Premiering December 5th, find The Palmetto Porch wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about our show, visit scpalmettoporch.com. When you visit Arizona, Time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.